do not love the world or the things in the world. The world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. First John chapter 2. We are working through the letter of 1 John together this summer, and the title of this series is So That You May Know. We talk together every week so far about how the major theme of this letter is how do we know that our faith is genuine? John is writing to provide assurance to salvation for these churches that he is caring for. And he's writing so that they can know that they have eternal life. They can know that their faith in Christ is genuine. And as we mentioned in the first week that we studied this together, John gives three tests that keep coming up over and over again throughout this letter. And the first of these tests is the doctrinal test, right? We know that our faith is genuine when we believe the truth of the gospel. The second test is what we called the moral test. We know that we, our faith is genuine when our lives have been transformed by the gospel and it changes the way that we think, the way that we speak, the way that we act. This is what we studied together last week in the first part of chapter two, right? In 1 John 2, verses three through four, where he says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. The way that we know that we have a relationship with God is our life has been transformed. But the third test is what we're gonna focus on this morning. We called that the social test. Namely, that our relationship with Christ transforms our relationships through the way that we love one another. What John is going to emphasize today is the command that we have as Christians to love one another. Now, we can equate Christianity with love, and we often do, right? When you talk about what does it mean to be a Christian, that's one of the first words that comes up, and rightly so. A Christian fundamentally is someone who loves God and loves others because they have been loved by God and have received God's love through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus said that's the greatest commandment, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love our neighbor as ourself. But is there anything else in Christianity that receives more lip service and less practice? than loving one another. How many times have you heard a sentence start like this? I love this person, but let me tell you, nothing ever, nothing good ever comes after the but in that sentence. It's I love this person so much. Let me rip them to shreds with gossip for the next 10 minutes while you listen and smile, but I'll make it better by calling it a prayer request at the end of it. But so just keep them in prayer. Listen, guys, we talk about the need to love others and we like the idea of loving others, but how often do we struggle to put it into practice? The tragic reality is that often professing Christians can be just as unkind, just as rude and impatient, just as prone to gossip and dishonesty as the world around us. And John is saying, this should not be the case. One of the clearest demonstrations that our lives have been transformed by Jesus is the way that we love others in the way that he has loved us. But let's be real. Why is this hard for us? Because people are hard to love. 
One kind of joking thing we say around here sometimes is ministry would be really easy if it weren't for the people. Like that's the hard part. You know, Pastor Sean likes to use this little phrase, EGRs. Some people are EGRs. You know what that means? It means extra grace required. Extra grace required. Every family has one. Every small group has one. Every church has a lot. Every marriage has two, right? EGRs. If you don't think you know any EGRs, you probably are one. Here's the deal. We struggle to love other people because it's hard because other than Jesus, the only people that we have to love are sinners. So anytime you love someone other than Jesus, you will be loving someone that inevitably will hurt you, that inevitably will sin against you. And so we have the opportunity to love like Christ. If loving others were easy, we wouldn't need Jesus. but we need Jesus to be the one who models perfect love for us and by his Holy Spirit empowers us to be able to love others in that way. So my goal this morning is to unpack this command that John gives that we love one another and talk about how we can put that into practice because here is the main point of this text. Our love for one another demonstrates that we are walking in the light. That's your main point. Our love for one another demonstrates that we are walking in the light. With all of these things in mind, let's read this passage of scripture together. Second John, we're gonna be studying verses seven through 14 this morning. Let's read this together. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. And so, Father, we rejoice this morning in the simple truth of Psalm 93 that the Lord reigns. Lord, that you reign and rule over all things, that you are clothed in majesty and splendor, that you are the almighty God. And yet, Lord, you as the almighty God have loved us so much that you sent your only son into this world, the perfect example and demonstration of love. The ultimate example of that being when Jesus went to the cross to pay for our sins and rise from the dead. Father, I pray that today you would convict us of our lack of love for others. Lord, would you challenge us to follow the example of Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit, that we might love one another just as you have loved us, that we might be with you in the light. We love you, we praise you, and we pray that by the power of your spirit, you would now open up our hearts and minds to receive what your word has to teach us today, that we might be transformed by it. For we ask it in Jesus' precious name, amen. Let's consider together this command to love, this command to love. 
the command that is both old and new, as becomes plain through this context and cross-reference with John 13, is that this command is to love one another just as Jesus has loved us. So let's consider what these verses show us about the command to love one another. First of all, it is an old slash new command, I'm calling it. This is an old slash new command that we have to love one another. I love this. Verse seven, beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you've heard. So John says, all right, guys, this is nothing new. This is an old commandment. You've had it from the beginning, been there all along, you know, nothing new to see here, old commandment. Verse eight, at the same time, it is a new commandment, huh? What's going on here? It's old commandment. Now it's a new commandment. What is going on here? Do we have a contradiction? Two verses run right next to another. Maybe John's, you know, at this point, I think he's an old man. This is toward the end of his life. He's writing this letter. Is he just starting to lose it a little bit? Like he can't figure out, hey, it's old. Actually, it's new. No, there's a sense in which this command is old. And there's a sense in which this command is new. Let me explain. First of all, how is the command to love one another an old command? Something we've had from the beginning, not a new command. Here's why. Because God has always expected people made in his image to love one another. God is love. We are created in God's image to reflect his character in the world. And so from the very moment of the creation of the first human beings, there has been this expectation that his image bearers would love one another. We see this, for example, in the Old Testament law that, you know, 1,500 years or so before Jesus, there is this command to love one another. Leviticus 19 says this, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. We often think when we hear love your neighbor, we attribute that to Jesus. And he did say that, but what we don't often realize is he's quoting Leviticus when he said that. He's quoting the Old Testament. Here's why that's significant. I think that we can have this tendency to picture the God of the Old Testament was all about wrath. He was all about justice. He was all about holiness. He was all about the law, yeah. But then we get to the New Testament and Jesus relaxes things a little bit. He's like, it's all good, bro. Just love one another. It's all about love. No more law, no more holiness, no more wrath. It's just all about love. Let's just love each other. But the reality is not only is that theologically wrong, because God does not change, because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But the reality is that God has always been completely holy and always been completely loving. So the God of the Old Testament is a God of love. And the God of the New Testament is still a God of holiness. Just read Revelation. So it is an old commandment. Those who are made in God's image have always been expected to reflect the love of the God who is love. That's why it's an old commandment. That's why it's nothing new because this has always been the case. We've always been required to love one another. So then how is it new? He says in verse eight, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you. How is it a new commandment? I think John is quoting from Jesus or he's referencing what Jesus said in John 13, verses 34 and 35. Jesus said this, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Well, hold on, Jesus. We just heard Leviticus and all that. How is this a new commandment, Jesus? The next part is what makes it new. Love one another just as I have loved you. Just as I have loved you. That's the new part. 
just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. According to John Piper, what's new about the new commandment is that Jesus is the pattern and the power for our love. The pattern and the power. Let's go through those. First of all, Jesus is the pattern for our love. That is, we love just as Jesus has loved us. He is our example. He is our model. He is the one who has come into this world and loved perfectly to show us how it's done. If you want to know what loving others looks like, read the gospels. Look at Jesus's life. Think about his compassion for those who were in need. Think about when he was preaching all day and thousands of people are coming to him and they're hungry and his disciples are like, all right, show's over, time to go home, get out of here. And Jesus is like, they're hungry, feed them. They're like, we ain't got any food. He's like, it's all good. I'll make some. So he has compassion toward those who are in need. Think about his kindness toward the outsider and the outcast. Those who have been rejected by the society and the culture that they were in were the very ones that Jesus would seek out and love. He was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He was a friend of those who had been rejected. Think about Jesus's humility and service, even washing stinky, dirty feet. And how about this one? How about his love for those who betrayed him? His love for Judas. He knew all along what Judas was gonna do. He still loved him. He still washed his feet. He still spent time with him. It is an old commandment to love our neighbor, but what is new is that love has become incarnate and shown us how it's done. So Jesus is the pattern for our love, but he's also the power that enables us to love. John 15, Jesus says this, as the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Just, just pause there for a minute. How much does the father love Jesus? How much does the father love Jesus? A lot. That's the answer, a lot. And I wouldn't even feel comfortable saying this, but it's in the text. It's just too incredible to even get my head around. He says, as the father has loved me, so I have loved you. That's a lot. So I have loved you. But then he follows that up by saying, abide in my love, remain in my love, live moment by moment in this love that I have for you that is as great as the love that the father has for me. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Yes, Jesus is our example. He is our model. But if all we had was an example, we would never be able to do it because we're sinners. But we are able to live it out as we abide in his love, as we receive his love, we are transformed by it. And now we are enabled and empowered to love others as Christ has loved us. Christ is the pattern and the power for our love. And finally, this commandment is new in the sense that it is given fresh expression in our lives when we live it out right? It's an old commandment, love one another. It's new in the way that Jesus has given it to us, but it's new and fresh as we live it out. You ever get something that's like slightly used, like a car or a house or some kind of new device, and someone will ask you, is it new? And what's your typical response? It's new to me. Like it's not new, but it's new to me. I think that could be kind of what's going on here. It's an old commandment, but, but it's also new to me as I am transformed by the gospel and I begin to live this out to love others as Jesus has loved me. So the rest of verse eight says, this commandment is true in him 
that is in Christ as he is our pattern and power and in you, right? It's new to me as I'm living it out because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. John 1, 9 says that Jesus is the true light who has come into the world. So by saying the darkness is passing away, it's speaking of the reality that because Jesus has come, that light is now shining and he will continue to shine until that day the darkness is completely gone when he returns. That this darkness, it's already on the way out. And in light of eternity, in light of these realities, we are to love one another. But next, John is going to show us that our love shows, it demonstrates that we are in the light. Our love is what shows that we are in the light. This is some, some direct and very important verses coming up in verses nine through 11. Let's look at verse nine. Whoever says he is in the light, whoever is making this profession with his mouth, hey, I am in the light and hates his brother, is still in the darkness. What he's saying is your actions are reality, not your profession. You can say you're in the light all you want, but if your actions do not match that, you're in the dark. If you say you're in the light and you hate your brother, then you are in the dark. But then the opposite is verse 10, the flip side. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him, there is no cause for stumbling. John sometimes likes to put a negative and a positive statement back to back for emphasis so that we can't but possibly miss the point. We've talked about how John is a lot like James that we studied last summer. He's a straight shooter, man. He tells it like it is. He pulls no punches. He's saying here, regardless of what we claim to be, if we are not loving the brothers, we are not in the light. And what does it mean to be in the light? Just a reminder, 1 John 1, 5 through 7, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. So God is light. We have fellowship with God in the light and we walk in the light. This means that we are Christians, that we are in Christ, that we have a relationship with God. So let me restate what John is saying here very bluntly. Whoever claims to be a Christian, but hates their brother is not a Christian, regardless of their profession. That's what John is saying here very plainly. And notice also the word that he uses. He does not say whoever hates his neighbor, whoever loves his neighbor, it's his brother. What's the difference? He's talking about fellow Christians here. He's talking about other Christians within the body of Christ. Now, of course we are to love all people, amen? Of course we're supposed to love our neighbors. Of course we're supposed to love all people that we come into contact with. But there is a unique calling and a unique responsibility that we have as Christians to love each other in the body to love other Christians. Galatians 6.10 puts it this way. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone to those who are of the household of faith. There's an especially here because we're a family. We have a unique calling and a unique responsibility to love one another in here, in the church, in the body of Christ, to love our brothers. 
And so we've talked a lot about the command to love, the need for love, that love demonstrates our walk with Christ. Now let's get really practical for a minute. What does that actually look like in our lives? What does that actually mean for us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ? And I think this is important for us because love in our culture is such a vague and mushy concept. You know, trying to define love is like trying to nail jello to the wall. It just falls apart and goes all over the place. Like, we don't understand what love is. Foreigner wrote that song. You guys can start singing it if you want. I want to know what love is. We all want to know what love is, right? Because we don't understand. We can stop at that point. Uh, We need to know what love is and what it actually looks like in our lives. If not, it turns into vague sentiments and I love this person, but it turns into lip service that means absolutely nothing if we don't define it carefully. So first of all, what is love? And then what does it look like? I love this definition by one of my favorite preachers, Vodi Bakum. He says that love is an act of the will accompanied by emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object. Let me repeat that. Love is an act of the will accompanied by emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object. Let's unpack that. First of all, it's an act of the will. The will is the faculty of our mind that chooses, that makes commitments, that makes choices. So before anything else, we need to understand that love is something that we commit to do. It is at first a choice. That is so countercultural because our culture often treats love as I fell in love. I got struck by Cupid's arrows. I can't help it. It just happened to me. It's random. It's arbitrary and capricious. It just happened to me. I'm a victim of it. But the reality is it is first and foremost, a commitment that we make, a choice that we make to act in love. But next it is accompanied by emotion, accompanied by emotion. This is important because you could take what I just said about the will too far and try to take emotions completely out of it. It's like, I love you. I love you so much. Can't you see? No, of course it's accompanied by emotion, but here's the deal. It is not devoid of emotion. Neither is it driven by emotion. It is accompanied by emotion. Can I use this illustration? It's not the truck. It's the trailer. The emotions are the trailer being pulled by the truck. It's not the truck that's driving the thing. We get into trouble when the emotions are what is driving love. It's accompanied by strong and passionate feelings. But finally, it leads to action. Love without action is just talk. Love without action is I love this person, but. Love leads to action on behalf of the one being loved. And fundamentally, what is the action of love? God so loved the world that what did he do about it? He gave, love gives, often sacrificially. That is what love does. It is sacrificially giving of yourself for the good of another. So now practically, what are some ways that we can love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ? Let's speak both negatively and positively. First of all, negatively, love is a commitment both not to do certain things and to do certain things. So when I say I love you, first of all, negatively, it is a commitment not to sin against our brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul puts it this way in Romans 13. He says that love is the fulfillment of the law. And he quotes the 10 commandments. Now, when you think about love, maybe the first thing that comes to your mind is not the 10 commandments. But what Paul is saying is, hey, if you love your brother, you're not gonna steal from them. You're not gonna lie to them. 
You're not going to commit adultery with them or their spouse. You're not going to covet their stuff. You're not going to lie about them. If love does not do those things, but love is committed to the good of another person. Love does not use people, but love loves people and gives to them. That's negatively, but we can do better than that, right? I mean, you don't have to love someone just to not hurt them. We love them positively by sacrificially giving for their welfare. We seek to meet their needs in whatever way is appropriate and helpful to them. We seek to meet their physical needs. You know, James, when he's talking about faith and works in James chapter two, he's like, what good is it to say to a hungry guy when you see, hey, God bless you, brother, be warmed and filled and then keep on going. Is that what love does? No, as we have opportunity, we seek to meet the practical needs that people have. As God has blessed us, so we seek to bless other people. We seek to meet the emotional and spiritual needs of people. We weep with those who weep and we rejoice with those who rejoice. We pray for one another. We encourage one another. We spend time with one another, inviting each other into our lives, showing hospitality. We seek to display the kindness of Christ. And finally, when we do sin against one another and we will, we forgive one another. That's what love does. We love and so we forgive just as we have been forgiven. We could go on and on, but the reality is this is our calling. We are called to love one another. And even more so in light of verse 11, where John gives us a word about the danger of darkness, the danger of darkness. Verse 11 is a haunting, haunting verse. It says, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is a warning about the danger of hatred. If hatred is the opposite of love, this is a warning of that. It's a warning of the danger of hatred and, and how, what it does to us. So he says, the one who hates is in the darkness. That is, they're not a Christian because they're not in the light. They are walking in darkness. That means their lifestyle is one that is dominated by sin. And then finally, they don't know where they're going. They're morally and spiritually blinded to where they're now not even able to discern right and wrong. They're not even able to do the right thing because they are blind and in the dark. This reminded me of a sobering passage from James chapter one, verses 14 and 15, which says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This is the progression from desire to sin, from sin to death. Here is the reality, church. If sin is not killed, it will grow. If sin is not killed, it will grow. There is no such thing as neutrality here. Not possible. We cannot keep pet sins and expect them to stay small. They grow. You can't put a sin in a box and then stick it on your shelf and hope it stays there. It will burn down the house eventually. When desire is fully conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. The Puritan John Owen said it this way, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And this is especially true as we are talking about this morning in verse 11 of hatred. If hatred is not repented of and killed, it will grow. 
and the history of the world from Cain and Abel all the way forward to our day shows the deadly and tragic results of when hatred is not killed. I want you to think about these very sobering words from C.S. Lewis in his famous book, Mere Christianity. These words make me just wanna, wanna weep and repent of the times where I've harbored hatred against others. He says, the Germans perhaps at first ill-treated the Jews because they hated them. Afterwards, they hated them much more because they had ill-treated them. The more cruel you are, the more you will hate. And the more you hate, the more cruel you will become. And so on in a vicious circle forever. Good and evil both increase at compound interest. That is why the little decisions that you and I make every day are of such infinite importance. Infinite importance. Do we understand that that angry, bitter thought that we harbor in our heart against another person, do you have any clue what that can do to your soul if you don't deal with it? It's the old wisdom. You ever heard the saying, bitterness is like drinking poison, hoping it kills them. It really is true. So here's the encouragement that I have, man, as we're talking about hating our brothers and sisters in Christ in this passage, as I've been talking about this, for many people in this room, a face is in your mind right now. A name is in your mind right now. There's a person that has wounded you, a person that has hurt you. And even now in this moment, you're struggling. You're like, Pastor Nate, you just don't get it. And listen, I don't, I don't know. We've all been sinned against, some of us, in horrible ways. I never would want to minimize the pain of that. But I also know that you and I have sinned against a holy God and that the debt that we owed to him that he forgave is much greater than any debt any human being could ever incur against us. And he forgave us freely. And by the power of the gospel, he invites us to be free of that burden of bitterness and hatred by forgiveness, just as he has forgiven us. So let me encourage you, if that's you, if you're harboring anger or bitterness or resentment this morning, don't let that desire grow into sin and that sin grow into death. Deal with it. Forgive them. Seek reconciliation. Make things right. Hear afresh the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter five this morning, where he said, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. That's the encouragement. Let's be free of the burden of hatred and bitterness by extending forgiveness because I don't know if there's a better expression of love the way that we have been loved than that. So we've seen the need that we have to love one another and how obedience to this command shows that we are in the light. But this next section that we're going to study just briefly is gonna offer some words of encouragement for the church. 
encouragement for the church. I kind of love this. It's such a hard pivot right now. Uh, There's like 10 minutes on hatred and darkness. Now encouragement, yay. Uh, So let's now read this next section to close verses 12 through 14. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. This passage is really cool and really interesting. It's almost like a a puzzle to me that we're trying to figure out how do these pieces go together? How does this fit? So It's a poem, essentially. There's six uh, phrases in it. There's three sets. So there's two groups of three, if you will. So there's three different groups that are being addressed, right? The little children, fathers, the young men. And each of those groups gets two sayings. There's disagreement on how we categorize this, but I think little children refers to the whole church. Here's why. Seven times he uses that phrase in this letter and it usually refers to the whole church. We saw last week, 1 John 2, 1. Little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin and so on and so forth. So what I think is going on here is he's writing this encouragement to the church. Then by fathers, he's referring to those who are more spiritually mature and advanced in their faith by young men, those who are younger in their faith or less spiritually mature. I could be wrong. That's my suspicion of what's going on here. But the bottom line is actually, everything he says to all of them is true of every Christian, right? So it is generally speaking an encouragement to the church as a whole. Notice there's no commands here. This is encouragement. He is telling them these things are true of you. Think about a coach who is telling someone what they are capable of in order to get the best out of them. That's what John's doing. He's saying, this is true of you. Now live like it. This is true of you. So I've summarized these six things into three points. Let's go through them quickly. First of all, he encourages them that your sins are forgiven. That your sins are forgiven. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. There is no better news than that because that is our ultimate need. Our ultimate need is that our sins would be forgiven. The only way that our sins could ever be forgiven is because God sent his son to pay the penalty for our sins on the cross and then bodily rise from the grave three days later. And by faith in him, our sins are forgiven. I love those moments in the gospels where Jesus actually looks people in the eyes and tells them, hey, your sins are forgiven. Think about the story of the the paralyzed man with his four friends in Mark chapter two, where there's this huge crowd in the house and they're trying to get their friend to Jesus to get him healed. So they had this great idea. Let's go on the roof. Let's cut a big hole in the roof and let's just drop him through the roof. I would have loved to have been in on that planning meeting. Uh, and so they get there and they drop him in there, literally. Uh, and Jesus looks at him and says, your sins are forgiven. If I were one of his four friends, I'd be like, thank you for the sermon, Jesus. But actually he can't walk. That's why we're here. That's what he needs. Jesus do that, Okay. But Jesus knew even more than that, that his greatest need was not his disease or his sickness or his ailment. His greatest need was his sins to be forgiven. That was his bigger need. 
And so Jesus went right for the heart and he said, your sins are forgiven. And then the healing that followed was a demonstration of his authority to forgive sins. But imagine being there in that moment. Imagine Jesus looking him in the eye and saying, your sins are forgiven. Or the woman in Luke chapter seven. I love this story too. This woman who was a notorious sinner. Everybody in town knew who this woman was. She goes to a banquet at this Pharisee's house that Jesus was at. She comes to his feet weeping. She cries on his feet and anoints them and and wipes his feet with her hair. And this Pharisee is scandalized. He's like, if Jesus knew who she was, there's no way he would let her touch him. And Jesus looks her in the eye and says, your sins are forgiven. Imagine that moment. He looks her in the eyes and he says, your sins are forgiven. He doesn't say that to the self-righteous Pharisee. He said it to her, your sins are forgiven. And I want you to know that by the power of the Holy Spirit, when you believe the gospel, it could be as if in your heart, Jesus says those sweet words to you too. Your sins are forgiven. That is our greatest need. And there is no greater peace and joy and comfort in this world than knowing that, that our sins are forgiven. But the next encouragement is this, you know God. He tells them, you know God. He does that in three different statements. First of all, he says to the children that they know the father. I write to you children because you know to the father. Then he tells the fathers the same thing twice because he really wants them to get this. Verse 13, I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. Beginning of verse 14, I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. He who is from the beginning, we know from John 1, 1, that is Jesus. He is the word of life who is from the beginning. That is, he is eternal. This is the encouragement. You know God, you know the father, you know his son, Jesus Christ. And now we know this, but the word know in scripture is often much more than just intellectual knowledge. It is relational knowledge. The difference between knowing about someone and knowing someone, having a relationship with them. What John is encouraging them of is, you know God, you have a relationship with God. That is the encouragement. And then finally, he encourages the young men that they have overcome the evil one. He says in verse 13, I'm writing to you young men because you've overcome the evil one. And then the end of verse 14, he repeats that, but he adds how they overcome the evil one. He says, I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So they overcome the evil one. They have overcome the evil one because of their strength that comes from the word of God. He says, because you are strong. Now, unless John is writing to a church of bodybuilders, he's not talking about physical strength here. He's talking about spiritual strength. He's talking about the power of godliness in their life. He says, you are strong. And what makes them strong is that the word of God abides in you. That is the source of their strength, the word of God. There's that famous phrase in Joshua, right? When Joshua is getting ready to take the children of Israel into the promised land. And it says, hey, be strong and courageous. You probably have it on a coffee cup somewhere, right? Joshua 1.9. Our staff and our staff meeting on Wednesday actually looked at this passage together. And what's interesting to me is the verse that comes before the coffee cup verse shows us where Joshua's strength is gonna come from. Let's look at Joshua 1.8. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth but you shall meditate on it day and night 
so that you may be careful to do all that is written in it. For then you will have your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Joshua, this book of the law that you have, meditate on it day and night. That is where the strength comes from. That is how the evil one is overcome in our lives by knowing and meditating on the word of God. So these are the encouragements that he has for this church, that their sins are forgiven, that they know God, that they have overcome the evil one, that they are strong, that the word of God abides in them. And Coastal Church, I am so encouraged that the same is true of you, the same is true of us, that because of the gospel, our sins are forgiven. Because of the gospel, we know God. We know the Father. We know his son, Jesus Christ. Because of the gospel, we have overcome the evil one in Christ because his word abides in us. So at this time, I'd like to invite the prayer team forward. And as always, if you have a burden or a prayer need, there are gonna be people here during the last song and after the service who would love to pray with you and encourage you in the Lord this morning. I'd also like to invite forward the worship team. And we're gonna close by singing in just a moment, but I would like to leave with one final thought. You know, this old new command that we have is that we would love one another just as Jesus has loved us. But then I love what he says in verse 34 of John 13, where he says, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is how the world is gonna know that we belong to Jesus, that we love one another. You know, years ago, um, back when I worked at the hospital and actually back before we even had a Gloucester campus, at this time I was serving at the Yorktown campus. Uh, we had one of our lay worship leaders there uh, who had a table saw accident and actually cut off these three fingers on his left hand. And for you guys who play guitar, you know, you use this hand to make the chord shapes and things like that. You basically can't play guitar anymore, but he still had these two fingers. So we had the idea Let's get him a left-handed guitar. He can use these two fingers to, to hold the pick, and then he has to just, you know, relearn this way. So a lot of our worship team, we chipped in, we bought him this guitar. It was really sweet. He was crying. It was awesome. A lot of fun. Um, but here's why I tell that story. I was working at the hospital at the time, and I had a, a friend there, a coworker, who didn't know the Lord and really has no interest in talking about spiritual things. Whenever it would come up, he would kind of tune out or shut down, was not interested in talking about spiritual things. And I told him that story about how we had just recently done this for a friend of ours at church. And he paused for a good few seconds, and he started to look visibly emotional. And he said, I wish I had friends like that. I wish I had friends like that. My hope and prayer is that people will look at Coastal Church and man, even if they're not ready to hear our message yet, they would say, man, I wish I had friends like that. I wish I had people that loved me like that. And our answer should be, come on in, the water's fine. Come join us. We need to be a community of people that love each other so much that it is infectious. It is something that people desire, that they want to be a part of. That's how they're gonna know that we are Jesus' disciples, by our love for one another in the church. Because here's the deal, Coastal. Gloucester County will not know that we are Jesus' disciples by our beautiful new building. They're not gonna know that we're Jesus' disciples by our incredible worship team, by our awesome family ministries, or whatever else. 
Though those things are awesome. Fundamentally, the way that Gloucester will know that Coastal Church is a church that exists to develop authentic followers of Jesus Christ and that we really are authentic followers of Jesus Christ is our love for one another in here. That's how they're gonna know. That is how we're gonna make an impact in this county and around the world for the gospel. That this is a church where we treat one another like family, that we love each other passionately, That is my hope and my prayer. And my encouragement to us today is to be a church totally devoted to loving one another just as Christ has loved us. Let's close with prayer. Lord, we are humbled that you would love sinners like us so much that you would send your son into this world to rescue us. We thank you that you have loved us with an everlasting love. And I pray, Father, that you would work in our hearts so that we would begin to love one another as you've loved us. I pray, Lord, that the world would know that we are your disciples by the way that we love one another in here. Lord, we're grateful for you. Take this word that we have studied, help us to remember it, help us to apply it, help it to change and transform us. For we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.